0: You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Hi, my name is Bree, and I have the privilege of serving as a community group leader with my husband, Scott. And um, today's scripture reading is from Psalm 63, Matthew said, from the NIV. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed they will go down to the depths of the earth they will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals but the king will rejoice in god all who swear by god will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced this is god's word
1: thanks free as we wrap up the summer we are looking at select psalms from the old testament and today we come to a psalm of incredible hope and satisfaction amid great difficulty. Let's pray together that all of us, regardless of where you're coming from, where you're at today, that we would learn the truths that David did. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that times of difficulty that we face, do not come as a surprise to you. That we can come to you and cast our cares upon you. And in the midst of all that troubles us, you satisfy us. I pray for every one of us that we would know your satisfaction. Pray for everyone here that we would know the truths that David proclaims here for ourselves and experience them whether in times of plenty or in times of adversity and that we would find strength. Would you lead us to Jesus Christ by whom we have full access to you and to all your blessings and benefits and may we be changed today as a result, strengthened in Christ And may those who do not yet know you come to know you today and put their trust in you and be saved. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, I have in my library a series of five books written by Winston Churchill. I've never read them, but they look amazing on my bookshelf. (laughs) But one day I intend to. Because Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of Great Britain many years ago, used to speak a lot about the overwhelming seasons of personal battles, depression, and discouragement. And yet it is said that it is precisely because he faced those own dark periods in his own life that he was able later on at the age of 60 to lead a nation overwhelmed by Nazi threats in World War II. His own experience of adversity enabled him to be a leader who helped bring his country to victory. He called these periods of adversity his black dog. The Bible calls them the wilderness. Psalm 63 is about another leader, the great King David, who's facing his own wilderness. And what he learned in that time can help us as we face our own wilderness experience. Which raises the question, have you faced a wilderness season? Some of you have in the past. Some of you are in one right now. And to those who have not yet, you will. All of us need to be prepared. The wilderness season is a time when you experience great difficulty. Adversity, opposition, perhaps even some of your own weaknesses in an unprecedented way. Or outside of you, confusion. The wilderness is a season where you're wondering why things are not going the way that you want. Plans have failed. Things haven't turned out the way that you hoped. Expectations are unmet. If you have not faced the wilderness, you will. Every follower of Jesus will go through this at some point, if not many points in their lives. And it's important to know that when you do, that you don't just shrug it off or try to medicate yourself, if you will, by distracting yourself with entertainment or with substances because something deeper is going on in these moments and in these seasons. In the wilderness, you are being tested. What is it that you really believe? What is it that you are really trusting in? What is it that you are really standing for? Whether we like it or not, whether we're prepared for it or not, we will face moments of trial and testing, seasons in the wilderness, even with all of the modern resources available. See, in one sense, there's a great irony about facing the wilderness in our modern age. Because, in one sense, we are all surrounded by comforts and conveniences that most people in history would have only dared to dream about. And yet, I think we all acknowledge that we are more restless than ever, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The result is, there seems to be an oasis around us, but there is a desert within us. But King David, in Psalm 63, shows us hope. In fact, speaking of David during his wilderness, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said it best, as he often does, though there was a desert around the king, there was no desert in his heart. Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we all want to know? That no matter what wilderness I face, no matter what desert I find myself in, that there's an oasis that satisfies me in my own heart. Well, the truth of Psalm 63 is that we can have this oasis within us. The setting, the background, is telling because it is indeed in the wilderness. If you look in your Bible at the heading before verse 1, it says, in the desert of Judah. This wasn't just a metaphor for David as it often is for us. It was a reality. It's probably important for you to know that there were only two major times that David found himself in the wilderness. First, when he was younger, he was running for his life from Israel's first king, Saul, who out of jealousy and envy wanted to kill David and drove him into hiding in the wilderness. That was the first time. Some of the Psalms were written from that period. But then much later on in his life, there was a second wilderness. A time when he had been king for many years, but one of his own sons, Absalom, sought to take the throne from him and pushed David, his own father, out into exile through betrayal. Psalm 63 was written in this wilderness. In that moment, it seemed as if David had lost everything. And to make matters worse, not all, but some of the consequences were the result of David's own mistakes. And yet, in the midst of all of that, problems outside of him, problems within him, David is able to say, I am satisfied. How can we say the same? Well, there are three ways that we must respond in the wilderness. There are many more truths we can glean, but from Psalm 63, there are at least three things, friends, that we must do if we are to face the wilderness in a way that does not destroy us, but transforms us. Number one, when you face the wilderness, you must recognize your need for God. These psalms were not written from the comfort of an ivory tower, but from the reality of the desert experience. And David describes it as much in this period of isolation in verse 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And so this barren wilderness was a reality for David, but I suppose a poetic backdrop to describe all of us in our natural condition apart from God. The man who has been driven from Jerusalem, which was then the place of worship, is now a man thirsting in the desert like a weary traveler. But here's what I want you to see. This wilderness actually becomes a gateway for his growth. See, there are two very powerful truths that come from this. If we are to understand what real Christian experience is and how we can be satisfied even in difficult times. The first implication is this. Awareness of your need for God is the work of God in your life. Let me say that again because it's often assumed, but it's important to make explicit. Awareness of your need for God is the work of God in your life. When David says, I long for you, that is a good thing when you are going through a difficult time, it is a good thing that you are aware of how desperately you need God. The dangerous place to be is a place in life where you don't think that you need him. So let me put a question to you. Who's in a more dangerous position? The man or woman who's experiencing great success in their life But doesn't recognize their need for God? Or the man or woman who is just absolutely suffering, but who is very aware of their need for God? Who in the long run is in a better position? Well, the answer is the latter. We should fear for the person who is experiencing great comfort and success but doesn't think they need God for that end, if followed through, will only lead to destruction. But the person who is suffering and yet is aware of their need for God, their end, if they continue, will actually lead to glory. When you're going through it, And the only prayer you can throw up to heaven is, God, I need you. That's a good thing. See, to use an example of the natural appetite, we would say that a lack of appetite is actually an evidence of sickness. Your body needs food. Your body needs fuel. But if you're refusing to eat or you don't desire to eat, that is not a good thing. And we provide the help necessary for someone to, to, to consume the food that they need. Indeed, the Bible describes everyone in their natural state apart from God as having a sickness in the heart. We don't long for God, and instead we try to fill our lives by building our own kingdom and following our own rules and finding satisfaction in created things and not in the Creator. And so, by God's grace, you know what He does? He makes us aware of how desperately we need him. Now, I hope for some of you this is an encouragement. When I feel far from God or I feel dry, just the fact that I acknowledge that is a good thing. I fear for the people who aren't aware of it, but I rejoice for the people who are. When someone comes up for prayer and says, Man, I just need God so bad, I'm like, That is an evidence of grace. The fact that you recognize your need and that you're confessing that is a good thing. Your awareness of your need for God is the work of God in your life. When I don't want God to be far from me, I know that God is working in my life. The Holy Spirit is revealing in me my great need for God. It's not the only way he works, but it is certainly the beginning. And that leads to a second powerful implication of this point, recognizing your need for God. And it is this. Spiritual growth does not mean you desire God less, but you desire God more. So I just used the natural appetite as an analogy. Let me now say that's a bad one. Because unlike food... Right if someone presents an epic meal for you tonight, right? It's a sunny day, you're probably going to eat tacos. Tacos will be consumed on a day like this. There's a certain point and it's probably wise for you to say no. No more. Stop. Make it stop and that is a good thing. You're full. You no longer need it. But what is true in the physical realm is actually not true in the spiritual realm. You can never be full of God that you don't need him any longer. You never get to a place where God's revealing truth to you and you're reading his word and you're like, no, stop no more. Holy Spirit, you stop right there. I am not going to overeat today. (laughs) Friends, it's not a thing in the Christian life because spiritual growth increases your capacity For more. That's why Paul in Ephesians says, I pray that God would increase your capacity to know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God. Because the more intimacy that you have with God, the more the capacity you have for God expands exponentially. Your life is not meant to be like a car where you go to a service station and you fill up and you pay and you leave and you're like, see you later, I'll come back when I need you. It's not how it works. God himself is the fuel that we need every moment of the day. When you're facing the wilderness, you must recognize your need for God. But what do you do with that? What do you do when you recognize this is bad That I'm so disoriented right now. I don't know why things are working out the way that they are in my life. It seems like a mess. I'm not sure I see God's hand in it. God, I need you. But where do we go from there? Well, that's the second step. First, you must recognize your need for God. But secondly, you must renew your pursuit of God. There's something you must do. You must recognize your need for God And you must renew your pursuit of God. See, you need to know your need for God. But you also need to know the God you need. See, David is in no way being generic or vague. He's not saying like, oh, I just hope the universe comes through for me. That's not what David is saying. He's speaking about the God of the Bible. The one true God who has revealed himself in time and history. And David is showing us here in Psalm 63 what it means to be occupied with God even in the place of the wilderness. So it's a song of resolve, of determination to pursue God in spite of the circumstances. So how do we do that? Practically. There are four ways. You might even want to write them down. Four ways that David renews his pursuit of God even when he's tempted to lay it down, and each are vital. In fact, I would say that they all build on each other. So how do we pursue God in the wilderness? Number one, you remember him. You remember God. Verse two, he recalls what he had previously learned about God earlier in his life. I have seen you, past tense, in the sanctuary, and I beheld, past tense, your power and your glory. When David recalls the temple that he's currently separated from in this desert state, he's remembering and recalling to mind the God who made promises and made good on his promises by providing a temple, which was the way in which God provided access to his presence. David's remembering specifically his power and his glory, and it is of great comfort to him. He's remembering the things that he learned. God is powerful. That means he's able. He's the one that created this world. And therefore, he is the one who is ina- powerful enough to enable me to get through this wilderness season. But he not only remembers his power, he remembers his glory. When David's thinking of the temple and he connects to the word glory, it's that God revealed himself there. It's the God who meets broken humanity where they are at. So here's what's David. Here's what David is remembering. God, you are not only able, but you are willing. You are not only powerful, but you are good. See what David is doing? He's remembering what he's already learned. See, for those of you who have not yet faced the wilderness, it is so vital that you remember and take to heart what you're learning now because the wilderness will come. To use a silly example, it was very fun for me several weeks ago when we flew on an international flight with over 70 people from our church, many of whom had never been on a plane before. And what was amusing to me was the moment of turbulence. Now, as a seasoned flyer, it's like no big deal. The plane's bouncing up and down. Like, I've got it. I've got my coffee. I know how to juggle. Like, it's like no problem. I'm just like fully functioning at 30,000 feet in the air and like an aluminum tube, like a bird in the sky. I'm like, I've got this. But other people are like, oh my God. Just hands on other humans and like chairs. "Ah," Just with a look of fear. And I look over, I'm like, it's fine. I've been here before. Welcome to the wilderness. (laughs) Now here's my point. All of us experienced Turbulence. But some were not prepared for it. I'm not saying that if you just remember and take to heart the things that you learn now that it won't be painful. Every wilderness season will be painful. But if you remember what you're learning now, it will be less debilitating when it comes. If you had prepared those flyers, hey, when you fly, there will be a high chance of turbulence. The plane will move around. It will shake. You will be afraid. It's fine. The pilot's... They're all, they've been through this. They're prepared for it. So when it comes, you might be a little bit frightened, but you have the information. This is normal. Someone's in control flying the plane. Friends, for those of you who come to the word of God flippantly because things are going so well in your life right now, I beg you to take these truths to heart. David remembers God. But secondly, he values God. That's the second way he pursues God in the wilderness. Remember God, value God. Look at verse three. Because, so he remembered past tense, but now he's adding up God's value and his worth in his mind. He says in verse three, because your love is, not was, is better than life, my lips will glorify you. See, David's not saying, well, God, you used to be everything to me. <sighs> but not anymore. He's not saying that. He's saying, I remember your power and your glory. And when I value it, and when I rightly think about it in my mind, my estimation is that your love is better than anything that this life offers. What's David doing? He's doing the work of adding up the value and worth of God. This is how great your love is. It's better than life. So I want you to notice that the discipline, if you will, in valuing something. I mean, think about it. We do this naturally in many ways. Like when you send a greeting card to a friend or a family member, you don't just write down facts in a greeting card. Right? To your sibling, you don't write a greeting card that says, you are currently a member of this family, (laughs) signed Tim. That'd be like such a bummer of a greeting card. Or to a coworker, maybe you're celebrating them. You don't say, hello, you are currently employed at this organization. I work next to you, (laughs) signed Tim. Is anything I said untrue? No. But notice the psalmist just says, God, you are real. Technically true. Signed, David. That's not the psalm. It's true, but what does he do? He values God. God, you are true and you are beautiful. When you write that greeting card to your family member, you're in my family and I'm happy about it. I like you being in our family. Or you're a great coworker. Those are the words that show a valuation. David is saying, I'm doing the work of saying, God, you are real, you're true, and when I think about all of that, I am valuing you. That's what David does in the wilderness. And that changes how we function. He compares and contrasts who God is in comparison with something else. Here's why that's important. The wilderness threatens to give us what I call theological amnesia, right? You learn all this great stuff and then life hits you. And one of the temptations is to throw everything out the window. Like, I don't even know if God's real. Like really one bad day and you're like an atheist now? Like, and yet what does David do? In the midst of the temptation to immediately forget the value of God, he adds up his worth. Isn't this what we do when we gather together on Sundays, right? When we sing the songs, the song isn't just about like, do you like that chord progression? Some of you are like, I don't like the key at G. Reality Ventura often plays G. It do- doesn't matter. It's about the truth of what we are saying and singing and what it's designed to do is to cause us to value God, right? That's why the songs that we sing aren't like, God, you are technically existing right now. And that is a fact. Amen. What do we say? What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus. In the midst of the desert, we remember God. We value God. And that leads to the third way he pursues in the wilderness. You enjoy God. You enjoy God. See how they build? He remembers. He values. He does the work of adding up the value and worth of God. And then he enjoys God. Verse 4 and 5. I will praise you as long as I live. In light of my evaluation, you are better than life. You're better than anything this world could ever give you. And David experienced life. He wasn't some naive, like, early songwriter. David has lived through it all. He knew the best that life could afford as a king. He also knew the worst of life. And he says, God, you're better than it all. Therefore, verse 4 and 5, I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied in joy with the richest of foods, with singing lips. My mouth will praise you. See, there's something about praising the thing that we value that brings enjoyment to us, right? We know this to be true about all kinds of things in life. The act of praise of someone or something leads to greater enjoyment for you. Let me just use two silly examples. If you follow a team, a sporting team that you like, when they accomplish something good, they score a goal, they win a game, you will often praise the team. You will celebrate in that moment even though you didn't do a thing, right? If you're watching the Dodgers and they win the game, you did nothing. That $100 you spent on like two Dodger dogs and a drink, like did nothing for the success of that team. But you're up on your feet raising hands and that leads to your enjoyment of it. Some of you might say, I don't like sports. No problem. Music. Oh, when you go to a concert and the band comes out, it's not like golf claps. It's like cheering, like, yes. Why? It leads to your own enjoyment. This is how we're designed. C.S. Lewis said it like this The psalmists are telling, when telling everyone to praise God, are doing what All men do when they speak of what they care about. Delighting. Praising God is linked to finding satisfaction in the midst of a desert. So God's call for you to glorify him and worship him is also a call to enjoy him. Or, as the early church theologian Augustine once said of God, in calling us to praise you, you move us to delight. And it is a public display that involves spoken testimony, there's physical gestures, and yes, singing. And in that sense, I think for many of us, our idea of worship needs to shift. If you are a Christian and I asked you if you should glorify God, you would hopefully say yes, absolutely. But when we just go through the motions or take no delight, we're not actually glorifying God. If, I, if every time I took my wife out on a date and I said to her, and she says, oh, what made you take me out on a date? And I just said, it is the prudent thing to do. <laughs> so it was, it was the right choice. Like every time, like, ooh, where are we going tonight? Well, it's just the right thing. Just a pure ethical matter, you know. She'd be like, oh, wow. (laughs) It's also about delight. If I said to my wife, the reason I'm taking you out is not only because I want to honor you, but I enjoy being with you. It honors her even more. See, part of how we glorify God is by enjoying him. David expresses this like like a meal that's fully satisfied with the richest of foods. In the midst of the desert, we have a reason to sing. And when we sing because of that reason, we will find that even our own souls become more satisfied as we are drinking from that deep well. But there's one more way that God has David pursue him in the wilderness. You remember God, you value God, you enjoy God, and you trust God. Because at the end of the day, when you're going through a hard time, that hard time may not go away anytime soon. You need to trust that he's the pilot in control in the midst of the turbulence. Verse six through eight, he says, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. And notice the language in verse eight. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's a statement of trust. David is worried and we will worry, but he remembers God. He values God, he enjoys God, and he trusts God. He trusts him. My soul clings to you. He even says, I'll sing in the shadow of your wings that there is a protection going on here that though I may not see it in the moment, I know it is happening. Which shows us this very incredible lesson that The more occupied we are with God, the more bearable our trials become. And let me just repeat that because it is true. The more occupied we are with God, the more bearable our trials become. Because we begin to draw from this oasis this relationship that we have with God who will never change that no wilderness can ever take away. I call it a pursuit because there is a discipline here. As it's often been said, there's a difference between being motivated and being disciplined. Motivation may or may not always be there, but discipline is making the choice to do it even if you don't feel like it. In fact, it's probably worth noting that this psalm, Psalm 63, was actually used by the early church as a, as a morning prayer. The church would gather together, and this was their morning prayer. And that comes from the verses we just read when David said, through the watches of the night, I will seek you. Or as some translations render it, I will seek early, which has caused many Christians to think of this as a morning psalm. And I think there's something to be said for regular, daily, and even early, before anything else happens, a meeting with God. There's a discipline to it. Because we're not always going to wake up in the midst of the wilderness and feel like stoked and satisfied. You don't wake up, alarm goes off, you're like, I'm satisfied. If you're anything like me, the first few minutes of waking up are kind of the worst. I don't know if you're like me, but all my dream my wife has crazy cosmic dreams. They're like so weird. They could be like art house films or what? I don't even understand them. Mine are all so real, and they're all anxiety dreams. I have a reoccurring dream that I come up to the pulpit with like no notes. <laughs> literally every, oh, bless you guys. <laughs> oh, we should pray for him. <laughs> I'm literally like there, and I, oh, I'm like, ah, uh, uh. <laughs> So mine are very practical. It's just all anxiety. I just think of all the things I didn't do, I should do. I'm like, that's how I wake up in the morning. But then I crack open the Bible, get that cup of coffee. I have a self-heating cup. It's glorious. (laughs) And as I encounter the word, even this morning, like God met me. I was like not in a good place. God met me through his word. And my perspective was changed. I was reminded that, though things may be hard over here, there's an oasis. There's an oasis that God invites us to drink from, but there is a discipline to us drinking and drawing from it. Bonhoeffer spoke of this when he spoke of the importance of daily prayer. He says it pretty straightforward. He says, the morning prayer determines the day. Squandered time of which we are ashamed, temptations to which we succumb, weaknesses and lack of courage at work, Disorganization and lack of discipline in our thoughts and in our conversation with other men all have their origin most often in the neglect of morning prayer. Temptations which accompany the working day will be conquered on the basis of the morning breakthrough to God. Listen, there are a lot of things that I could say about my day that was a waste of time. Prayer and reading God's word will never be a waste of time. I've never gone through a time of prayer and said, well, that was a waste. I've never like read the word of God and be like, what a waste of time. Never. Even though there's effort and a discipline involved, it's how we learn to draw And drink from this deep well. But as I say you must pursue and renew your pursuit of God in the midst of the wilderness, let me say this. The pursuit of God is not a way of earning his favor. You're not earning gold stars by doing this. It's a way of enjoying the favor that God has already made available through Jesus Christ. And that leads to the last thing you must do in the wilderness, and that is remember the grace of God. You need to recognize your need for God. Yes, you must renew your pursuit of God, it's very practical. But in all of this, the very foundation is the grace of God. How does the grace of God show up in this psalm? Well, first, Note that genuine satisfaction with God is not only impossible when everything's going well, but even when everything is absolutely terrible because David reminds us of the context in verse nine through 10. Those who want to kill me, by the way, I don't know how bad the season is you're going through right now, but if David were in the congregation, you're like, I'm going through a hard time. He's like, yeah, my son literally is out to kill me. You'd be like, oh, the prayer ministry will be available during second set. I don't know what to say to that. David would be like the guy, like, that's heavy. Like, I don't even know what to say to that. So this is not some, like, fantasy thing. David's like, everything's fine, even in the psalm of praise. He says, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. David remembers God's justice at this very time when he's being exiled by his own son, he still found the love of God to be the most satisfying thing in his life. And so his psalm ends on a high note. In fact, many commentators, though some view the closing verse as super random, I do not believe that this is the case because David is bringing us right back where he started. In fact, one commentator says, verse 11 is both of a climax to... And the key to understanding Psalm 63. Verse 11, he says, but in spite of all this, the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Where's the key? Notice he no longer says I. He no longer says me. He says The king. And it's more than just a way to refer to himself. For this was written from a place of abandonment and exile. It is a reassertion of his calling as king, even in the wilderness. So how can a person who's been failed and who has failed, able to say with joy, I know who I am. He was dying, thirsting, longing, and yet he's able to lift up his head. How? Because he knew that his calling and his identity was all a gift from God. David is the first person who will tell you that his kingship did not come from himself. It was a gift of God. He continues to see himself in light of God's grace. Friends, the same is true for our identity as Christians, as sons or daughters of God. You are not called so because of anything that you did or failed to do. You are called sons and daughters of God because you have been adopted by grace. You have been forgiven by grace. You have been accepted by grace. Your calling in life is a gift of God. So that in the face of danger, disappointment, and yes, even your own failures, we can repent, we can receive forgiveness, and we can assert our calling once again with boldness. Why? Because it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. So we, like David, must drink from the well of God, that in the midst of crushing experience, I'm able to draw on the love and acceptance of God even though the love and acceptance of others may be very far from me. If the true and living God is your source and center, then you can have an identity that will stand up to anything, even in the wilderness. And how can David be so confident of this? Because of hesed, which is the Hebrew word for God's faithful love. When David says your love is better than life, that's the word he uses. Hesed, your sacrificial love. It's a love that's described as God saying to you, I am committed to you even at great cost to myself. So, David's commitment comes from God's commitment. God, you promised to love me in spite of me. And that's why he says, Your love is better than life, because nothing can take this love from me. He feasted on that love, and so should we. So, if David can say that, clinging to the promises, then how much more? can we be satisfied today because we see this promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ who, when he began his public ministry, he faced his own wilderness against the world, the flesh, and the devil and was absolutely victorious where all of us have failed and went all the way to the cross where he took the penalty for our sin, for our failure, took the punishment that we deserve. Why? Hesed his sacrificial love. His love for you and for me was so great that he gave up his life for us. He paid so that you would not have to. So the fulfillment and satisfaction that you need in the wilderness is given to you without cost. And God says, come and feast. At no cost to you, but infinite cost to me. That's why God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. The invitation is there for you of satisfaction, even in the wilderness. The key for David is how he began. He said, my God. Can you say that today? God, you are my God. And I'm gonna drink from that well because Christ made a way. That's the invitation for you. And if that's true, you can face anything because no one can take the love of God from you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those who have not yet said, my God. I pray for anyone here who hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as salvation and savior. I pray that they would do so now, knowing that there is no salvation in anything else, anyone else. I pray that today they would say, my God. I believe, Jesus, you died on a cross for me and rose again to give me life and forgiveness forever. And Father, I pray that though many of us may be going through difficulties and wilderness, I pray that right now as we worship and take communion and pray that we would draw from that deep well that no wilderness can ever drain, that no opposition can ever keep from us, that our souls might be satisfied in your love. Would you lead us now? We ask in Jesus' name.